0: Hey everyone, today I sit down with shark scientist and marine biologist Riley Elliott, who is also known as the shark man. I came into this one really excited. He's got to be one of the most passionate and tactical conservationists that's around today. Riley has played a massive part in ending the Western Australian shark call and also the banning of shark finning in New Zealand. And what I love most about Riley is his practical approach to conservation. He doesn't just go out and complain about things. He always offers an alternative solution that's better than the current one. In this episode, we talk about how Riley got started in marine biology, what his time studying in South Africa was like watching the great whites poach seals all day and then surfing in the exact same waters that evening, and his formula to create change and political policies, and then just life in general. I had so much fun chatting with him and I have huge, huge respect for the work that he and his team have done. So, yeah, let's get into it. Here's my chat with shark scientist Riley
1: Elliott.
0: Riley, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. I've been following your work for a long time now. For people that don't know who you are and what you do, can you give us a little rundown?
1: Yeah, well, firstly, thank you for having me on here. It's uh, it's great to have these platforms like yours to share information from the other side of the world, so other people can hear it. Um, but you know, put it short. My name's Riley Elliott. I'm a shark scientist. But um, you know, I like to see my marine biology, you know, aspect of my life just being one one point of it. You know, I I used to study dolphins. Um, I used to study the most you know loved animal there is around and um, I got into sharks because I was a surfer who was scared of the man in the gray suit underneath us. Um, but instead of just remaining scared, I was taught to go to the source and uh, you know, figure out what the real information was. And, and, and that's where I have you know, really, I guess, paralleled who we were just discussing earlier. Uh, Matt Draper and I have the same slogan, it's just fear to fascination. Yeah. I had a fear of sharks and now I'm totally immersed in the fascination of these beautiful animals.
0: Yeah, so if we even rewind it
1: further back, how did you
0: get into marine biology at all?
1: Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm from New Zealand. I, I live in a, you know, a rock in the bottom of the South Pacific, <laughs> surrounded by ocean. Um, I was originally born in Vancouver, though. Uh, my dad's Canadian, my mom's a Kiwi, and as a young kid, I grew up on the outskirts of Vancouver uh, near the wilderness. You know, that's the great wilderness. I'm up in Whistler. Ah, sick, dude. I've done yeah. three seasons up there. You know, I love it. Yeah. And, you know, in Whistler, it, it showed me, I guess I'm going ahead here, but the first time I saw a bear, I freaked out, and my mind said, don't run, but I just ran because I was drunk coming home to staff accommodation. <laughs> I what to do. And, and I guess that's a classic example, of not understanding things, but since a kid growing up in the back streets of Vancouver, you know, I saw brown bears. I saw uh, black bears. I saw raccoons. I saw squirrels. I saw all these animals, and, and I had a real fascination of, what they were. And my parents noted that as a young kid, they'd see me, you know, sit there until I had chipmunks on my hand. And they saw I had a gift to animals and they encouraged me to pursue that. Yeah. Um, and, and the biggest lesson I've, I've lived by through my, my father was, you know, don't chase success in life, don't chase money, uh, figure out what your passion is, become the best at it and success will follow. Mm. So they, um, they encouraged me to follow my passion as a nature kid. But to become the best at it, you got to do well at school, as I always tell school kids, you know. So, um, you know, I moved back to New Zealand with my family at five because it was a smaller test tube to, to, to grow up and become a tall poppy, I guess. And, um, and it was a very similar place, you know. It's surrounded by wilderness. Um, and unlike Canada, which is the big Rockies in the wilderness and on land, I was surrounded by the, the South Pacific. And um, so my interest went from the land and the animals and the nature of land to uh, of that of the ocean. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess that's where I got into diving and surfing.
0: So, yeah, at that point, you were still really young in high school?
1: Yeah, right? yeah. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I went through intermediate and yeah. I was surrounded by kind of land animals. Then I got into a group, uh, a youth group of surfers. Um, which took us out to the famous surf break called Raglan. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's only half an hour from my house. And, <laughs> nice. And uh, I was treated by epic waves. And, uh, you know, ultimately, there was any surfer. knows you're sitting on your board out the back most of the time. Yeah. And in those moments, you know, you're, you're generally by yourself. And you kind of just sit there and watch and wait. And that allows you to start noticing the things, you know, that, that happen in nature. Yeah. You know, the animals. And you sit there and you watch, you know, the, the cormorant dive down and, how long it's down and then it pops up at another spot and it goes back to the same spot and well, why is it feeding there and not over here and you now then you'd see the gannets uh, you know using surface uh, buffers of wind off the waves to, to glide and not fly and you can't help but start questioning why things work yeah. and uh, you know, very quickly when you look into nature you realize we've copied a lot of what we use in the industrial age from nature so you know all people should be able to relate to the fascination that, that nature has. And, and for me, um, I, 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 was, I was doing every subject at school. As I said, my parents made me well-rounded. And, but I, luckily enough, I had some teachers that captivated me and it happened to be in those areas of biology and physics. And, and so as I went through high school, I kind of narrowed down what I wanted to do. I started watching documentaries like David Attenborough, yeah. as we all. And uh, I said to myself at that young age, you know, I want to be like him. I want to be like Steve Irwin. I, I looked into courses at university about natural history filmmaking and I, I admired the guys who captured the imagery but I loved the science and I loved communicating it. I did speech competitions and debating and I decided at that point I wanted to be the person in front of the camera communicating science through stimulating visual imagery.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, So yeah, I went to university
0: yeah.
1: and, uh, and with, an, with a dream to become the most credible person I could uh in order to be uh, not only the best to communicate the science but also out compete anyone else in what is always a competitive realm yeah. because there's only one or two david admiral yeah exactly so exactly it's a difficult business
0: it seems like a good way to go about it and at that point you were just interested in kind of marine biology as a whole when did the focus switch to sharks i know you still deal with everything but
1: yeah i mean uh at university, you know, I went to university in Dunedin, it's the bottom of New Zealand. It's as close as you get to Antarctica, basically, if you yeah. paddle too far out the back. When you're surfing, <laughs> you're on belt to Antarctica, and in fact you're surfing in the polar current. So it's not uh, not rare for us to see uh, leopard seals chasing penguins and uh, you know, whales and seal colonies and um you know, with that comes the apex predator, the great white shark. So you know, when you start university or undergrad, you have to take a range of subjects. And it was kind of like being back at the start of high school again. You, you, you had to start wide. Mm-hmm. And I, I really encourage people when they, when they want to do something, you start wide. And I did geography, geology, zoology, marine biology, um, you know, a whole chemistry, a whole bunch of things that you have to do in undergrad. And slowly but surely, year by year, I was able to narrow down the things I enjoyed. Yeah. You know, I really liked geography. And geology, but then it got to the point of politics and looking under a microscope at, at, at crystals forming. And I didn't, I didn't find that so fascinating as yeah. as my biology courses. So um, I ended up doing a BSc in honors, um, studying an endangered population of bottlenose dolphins in Fjordland, which is one of the most remote places in the world and, and one of the coldest. And um, this is a fjord. It's a deep, dark, kind of scary place where when you're doing your sampling, you're looking down... And you know that whatever creepy animals down there that we haven't discovered yet can see you. <laughs> you can't see it. So in the back of my head, as well as surfing, you know, every day down there, I just had this, you know, this, this, this humble um, respect of we're not supposed to be there. I've got that
0: we're, too right now. Yeah,
1: yeah. We're a relative astronaut, in these, especially when you go to these remote places. And I was well aware that there's great whites around there. Um, so I say to people that at that stage, the only formal and i have my fingers up here in rabbit ears formal education of sharks i had like most people was a movie jaws and so now everyone's on point with me everyone understands the understanding i was at at that point which was a fictitious movie very much influenced the way i felt about sharks and uh basically that was that i was shit scared of them Mm um so one day i was i was scuba diving and i looked down into these dark depths in this middle of nowhere place on scuba and i saw that suny sodal movement coming from the depths and yeah. and I, I fucking shout myself you know <laughs> and I, I broke all the rules of scuba diving I, I boosted five meters up instantly and yeah got to the surface and looked down and cringe waiting for that poster of jaws coming up from below yeah. me and uh, it was like a three foot long school shark coming up just doing what it does absolutely harmless obvious animal yeah and uh and I kind of laughed it off and and then as I was in the boat kind of driving home 100k's back to the base, I, um. I felt kind of ashamed, you know. I was like, mm. what? I'm a I'm a I'm a confident waterman. I yeah. I'm interested in animals. I I love exploring and I'm I'm not a softie, you know, so to speak, and and yet I was shit scared of this yeah. this this thing that I didn't know anything about. Mm-hmm. And I go back to that example my dad taught me of going to the source to get information at the dinner table. My dad's a very smart person, he's a neurosurgeon, astrophysicist, now he's a GP, and he'd use big words and we wouldn't know what they were as kids, and he wouldn't just tell us them, he would say, get up, obviously, go to the bookshelf, get the dictionary, come back here, and read it to the table. Yeah. So we all get the information from the source, the dictionary, and then we'll all learn what it actually is. And so for me, I was like, well, if I want to know what a shark is, I've got to go to the sharks and figure out what they are. And, Ironically, um, when I got back to university, there was a poster on the wall saying, uh, Come to South Africa and do an internship with Great White Sharks with this uh, epic internship program called Oceans Research. Um, and this has taken me back oh, 12 years ago mm-hmm. when I was 18. And so um, I got on the plane after my honors was completed between my masters. Um, and I went for an internship for six weeks where you pay. To learn the field skills that university doesn't teach you and more important for me the field skills of working with great white sharks yeah and um it was run by a fantastic team a fellow new zealand ryan johnson who's a well-respected shark scientist and uh, enrico genari who's an italian scientist and 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 a plethora of of, uh field specialists Mm -hmm. who were usually post-interns but um at that stage i was the very first very first run of interns going through this place um, and it was fantastic because it didn't have all the PC uh, legalities and uh, work-safe kind of things because they were kind of getting buffered out through the first thing, as most yeah. businesses say, which meant we were very hands-on with these sharks. And it, it was a very interesting trip, a very interesting journey, because not only is South Africa famous for its sharks, but it's famous for its good surf. And where we were was a field station right <laughs> on the with an epic right-hand point break. And within a kilometer of eyesight is uh, Mossel Bay's Seal Island, which is like the training ground for Great Whites. Yeah, they just where
0: see you see those shots of them flying through the air, right? Yeah. With a and seal.
1: And so um, this is like the training ground for the juveniles where they learn before they go compete with the big boys in Hans Bonn. <laughs> so um, I'd go out every day at dusk and dawn, and I would see these sharks breach on seals. And then I'd go back and I'd sit on my surfboard, in the out on the back of the surf break, <laughs> with an eye shot at us, and be like, Jesus, did I come to the right place to get my hands <laughs> stop shooting myself, right now? And you know, every swirl underwater and every movement, everyone looks at each other and does what surfers do, and just can't do anything about it. Just put it of yeah. your mind yeah. because the surf's too good not to be here. We're willing to take the risk, and. Um, to be blunt, at the end of it, I stopped surfing there because I made a personal, educated decision that I wasn't willing to take the risk in that place. Yeah, and I feel that that, you know, digressing here, but for surfers is, is a personal responsibility to take that respectful decision. And um, I decided I was there to study sharks, and I wasn't going to go and surf in the hot spot of foraging grounds, right, right. especially for learning sharks. Um, but yeah. I basically had six weeks there where I started to learn what sharks were, and, and it was fascinating. It wasn't, I, don't, I got over it through time that these sharks were just smashing seals. Um, and in fact, I went back to New Zealand and I did my masters, and uh, I finished that off in dolphins, and I couldn't get it done quicker because nothing against dolphins, but <laughs> cute and cuddly, everyone loves them. Yeah. Uh, get a lot of funding because we want to save the whales and the dolphins. Yeah. You get sharks are hated and feared, and for me, that was the X factor of the unknownness and the unjustified potential that they should be getting this care.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, plus, I wanted the answers of, of whether I should or should not still be scared of them when I surf. Right. So um, luckily, I was invited back to South Africa to, uh, to go there as a field specialist and help run Ocean's Research, which was, a, which was an absolute honor. you know. And I guess it showed to me that these guys had seen – I, I had the lust to understand what a shark was. Mm-hmm. And you, you need that in, a, in an area that's very poorly funded, which is the shark world. Yeah, um, And it's really only funded through fascination, you know, whether it be tourism or people who are just going to go do it for free because they want to learn more. Yeah, and
0: think about how much it took for you to become fascinated with them. You had to be in the ocean every day and run face-to-face into one before you even...
1: Ah, oh, totally. And, and most people don't have that privilege, don't have that luxury. Yeah. Who um be stimulated in that kind of way? They're just on shore shitting themselves and continue to do that. Yeah. Uh, you know um what or do they Twitter. say? Uh, um, negligence is bliss or whatever it is. I can't remember. Uh, ignor- ignorance is bliss. Ignorance yeah. is bliss <laughs> because um you know you can just justify the fact that you should be scared purely because you don't know anything about it. Yeah. So um yeah, it was that fascination that took me back to South Africa and, and work for six months solid every day. And the world's best place to study great whites. And mm-hmm. what was important about this period was that time allowed me to look further into these animals. And I remember a real particular incident that changed my perspective. And uh, we're up on top of these skyscrapers, like Mossel Bay is, is like the summer hotspot for South Africa. Mm-hmm. Thousands of people go there every summer, they flock this beach. The skyscrapers have housed these tourists. And like I say, a kilometer off the beach is the Seal Island Training Ground. And we're up on top of the skyscraper to get a vantage point to count seals and, and look at the, the predatory strategy and, and predatory evasion of, of what seals do to avoid these attacks. Yeah. And, and so we count how they move throughout the day, 24 hours a day. And at dusk, you see that the seals kind of know it's dangerous. And these juvenile ones, the first-year fledglings, kind of don't know that yet. And so they leave. And they leave in ones and twos and they're vulnerable. And you see what we see on Discovery—the sharks smashing. Yeah, and it was a fantastic thing to see. But what scared the crap out of me was at about eight o'clock—you know, two or three hours after twilight. Um, these sharks would move into the surf zone. And the first time I saw them swimming directly for where the surfers were sitting, I was like, "Shit, man, i have gonna ring someone!" Like, "Holy crap!" And my <laughs> boss was like, "Mate, they do this every day." I was like, "What do you <laughs> mean?" And he's like, Let's "Watch." And these great white sharks would swim the kilometre from Seal Island where they're viciously hunting seals. Yeah. They'd sit right underneath the surface. Jesus. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) Like, like, what is happening? And he explained to me that, you know, sharks need to swim to breathe. Yeah. And you imagine after you've just eaten Christmas to know that you had to do the equivalent of swimming. You had to go for a jog in order to breathe. Like, You don't want to do it because you're all full and stuff. (laughs) And so they just sit in the waves because the waves push that oxygenated, highly oxygenated water through their gills. And I can just sit there in the surf zone, which just happens to be where we are recreating. Yeah. But it showed to me very clearly that the sharks knew not only the difference between us and the seals, but they knew that when they were sitting right underneath us yeah. and we're far easier to catch in a seal. But they, they knew, I guess, not through sampling us, because they don't do it enough for that to create a... Right, right. They don't talk yeah,
0: they, amongst themselves.
1: No, yeah, a learning process. They, they just knew that because it wasn't, Hardwired into their system of what they hunt and where they hunted, great. the cues for hunting seals weren't there where we were surfing mm-hmm. um, and for me, I was like, holy shit, like as a surfer, even in the absolute hot spot of where great whites should be nailing people they 're not mm-hmm. and that gave me confidence in the second term of there to, to surf every day and yeah. feel more comfortable I mean sure, this was a learning ground for sharks, and you'd expect them to make mistakes, and that didn't poise it, 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 it as a very good place to to go surfing, but I made that calculated guess, I calculated um, assessment this time to realize look, the surf's worth it. These sharks have shown me through six months that they're, they're not going to touch us. And um, in fact, you know, we're sitting under us most of the time and didn't do anything. And for me, that allowed me to surf. So that was a great learning curve. And through the six months, there was a lot more. You know, and I'll, I'll fast wire through it too. In fact, you know, we had a shark jump on the boat one day. Um, we had to resuscitate it, crane it off the boat, tie it to the boat, resuscitate it, help it. We got it away. I started learning that I actually cared about these animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the, professionals, the day one professionals of freediving sharks, before all the ecotourism and the yeah. let's ride, and so let's make it tourism, it, the guys who learned to sw- free dive with great whites and other sharks were the spear fishermen in South Africa, the Mark Addisons. You know, um, these guys would swim 10 kilometers offshore to reefs in places like Aliwal Shoal and be inundated with sharks, but also want to catch their fish. And they got sick of giving their fish away, so they learned how to passe fight back through body language, not through powerheading and spearfishing the right. animal, but through body language, just like when you go into a bar which you face the, the South African <laughs> boys alone in South Africa, you learn through body language how to defend yourself so you don't get into a fight. Mm-hmm. And um, through time, we started taking interns and teaching interns how to free dive with sharks. And South Africa has a wide variety of species. And I racked up, you know, a dozen or so of, you know, bull sharks, tiger sharks, great whites, uh, all the reef sharks, a whole bunch of others. And and it put me on this path to, wow, there's so much more to learn. And this fascination curve of mine just grew exponentially. And, and I remember just like bungee jumping, the first time up there, um, sitting on the boat surrounded by dorsal fins of, yeah. of you know, albeit black tip reef sharks, which you know, they're two meter, three yeah. meter long but they can make
0: mistakes. So. They can yeah. make
1: mistakes. They're an intimidating animal and there's thirty or forty of them around the sh- around the boat. And I felt like bungee jumping. Everything on my body said don't do it. Yeah. But through just logical understanding of seeing that these guys do this every day and they're all here. Um, I rolled in and as soon as my face went underwater, I I the fear was gone. Mm. I saw that these sharks just They don't give a crap about me, man. They're there to eat sardines. Yeah. And that's important to realize. What is the actual prey the animals are swimming with? And then are you overlapping in an area with where they're trying to actually hunt that? And then the three golden rules of similar sharks, uh, are they there, which is eye contact, clear water, and a calm, low heart rate persona? Yeah. And um, all of that is so that you cannot shit yourself, and the shark cannot shit itself and make a mistake, and you can just coexist and realize you're just two predators. Exactly. And... um. That put me on the path that for the last decade I followed.
0: Yeah, the funny thing with diving, which I've realized as well, I actually, I can't say too much because I haven't gone diving with sharks yet, but I noticed if it's a gloomy day and you're above the surface and you're watching the swells and they're crashing against the rocks, it's kind of ominous. But once you're underwater, things get a whole lot more calm. And that's kind of the same with the knowledge of the sharks. Like I feel like most people just have that surface level knowledge uh, from what you see on Twitter or a headline that pops up on your Facebook. But once you like, really dive into what's going on, it makes so much more sense.
1: You just, you said every person's perspective right there who doesn't have that understanding. It's exactly that. It's a surface understanding. And what does a shark do above the surface of the water? Two things. One, it's jaws and gnar coming out because someone's put a piece of bait there that they're chasing. Yeah. Or it's the ominous dorsal fin cutting the surface. Yeah. And, and both those things just instill absolute fear. You go underwater and you see what is the purity of evolution. You see the most high-tech jet fighter airplane, if it's a marker, shark, or grant white, or you see <laughs> the most majestic glider plane in absolute perfection, being an oceanic species. You know, So as soon as people see that different and albeit real side of a shark, their perception changes yeah and that is what is so fantastic about the evolution of tourism um and taking people underwater to see them mm-hmm. um it's a, it's an instant perception changer and then people are open through this this is pure observation of beauty and which evolves into respect that there's there's far more to these animals than the surface understanding that you mentioned before
0: yeah i want to circle back to what you said earlier basically dolphins had the funding whales have the funding essentially but there was no there's not too many faces to for sharks like people that speak for the sharks and you i guess what maybe around 2013 kind of headed up the awareness around the new zealand shark call Can you talked yeah, right about was,
1: that yeah there was there's two different things you've in. There. there's the western australia shark call and then okay. there's new zealand finning both those things overlapped at the same time. All right, yeah, you can and, go through um, both if that works for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, basically, I ended up, after South Africa, to come back to New Zealand with this, this love and this fascination and, of sharks. And, and through, you know, RIP, Rob Stewart, um, Shark Water 2007, um, the world was exposed to shark finning, And I was like, wow, I'd just come back from South Africa understanding these animals and my mind being blown. And then I learned about what shark finning was through that amazing, amazing movie that basically opened the world's eyes and put a lot of people you see today working for sharks on that path. And, and I came back to New Zealand uh, with, you know, straight A's under my book. I, I, I'd always wanted to go to Ivy League school, Harvard, you know, Stanford, whatever. Um, and, and, and I started looking into the literature on sharks and shark finning and, and, and I realized my home country, New Zealand, was the fifth biggest exporter of shark fins in the world. And it fucking blew my mind. You'd never guess. New never. Zealand's brand is 100% <laughs> pure, is green, is, is... We're like, we take care of whales and dolphins. We're nuclear-free. We're like, we're the good guys. And we've got the best ocean in the world. And we do to some extent, to be honest. Yeah. But it, as a scientist does, you have to look into the literature. And as a marine biologist does, it's horrific when you look into fisheries, the numbers. And I, I realized that you know 100... 150,000 blue sharks have been finned every year and, and sold to the Asian market and nobody knew about it. And, and so all of a sudden my dreams and, and stuff of going to Harvard and those Ivy League schools or whatever were gone because I had a personal responsibility with the skills and the tool set and the academic ability I had accumulated over the years to do something in my backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kiwis are very, very proud of our backyard. And to be honest, we're very respectful of it. And I knew that New Zealanders would not stand for this. And it was only because they didn't know about it um, that it was going on. So now I'm in a position of wanting to do my PhD on this issue. But the only way you study these animals is by putting satellite tags on them, which is incredibly expensive. And I knew that funding was going to be an issue. And uh, basically the way science works is you're not a special person with a Academic crown that you get these privileged positions to go study cool shit. Yeah. You're a contractor like any other, answering a question for an industry. Exactly. And in marine biology, it's the fishing industries in general because they're the ones who have the money. Yeah. And what they're paying you to do is generally help them catch more fish or ensure what they're catching is sustainable to some extent. Well, mm-hmm. let's use a better word: a maximum sustainable yield. Um. So I knew with the sharks, I was basically taking away that $5 million that it was a year, which is chump change in the $1.65 billion fishing industry. Um, I was going to be taking that money away by stopping finning. So there was no way this fishing industry was going to give me that as funding, um, let alone when I tried to explain to them that sharks are what maintain the health of your fishery. And even with that scientific proven fact, they weren't going to pay it to me. So. I did what is, you know, a timely moment as an analogy. Um, took the America's Cup approach the sailing in New Zealand. We're, you know, known as the best sailors in the world, and albeit Oracle beat us, yeah, you know, last, you know, four years ago. Yeah, Oracle's funded by the billionaire, the Oracle yeah, guy. Yeah, name name. Larry Ellison. <laughs> whereas, yeah, whereas the America's Cup, our boat is sponsored by like thousands of small New Zealand people, <laughs> like the corner store, you know the veggie market person yeah. a dairy farmer here guys who put in like little bits of money to make a big <laughs> cool collective thing and so i realized that if i wanted to help save sharks for the new zealand public by the new zealand public it was going to have to be by the new zealand public so I did a cool funding strategy with um an amalgamation of whole, a whole lot of ngos in new zealand and we formed a collective called the new zealand shark alliance when my science was kind of the backbone to justifying the protection of these animals and the scientific credibility to back it. And these NGOs helped bring the awareness to the way to do that and that was to tell the shark story and do that through satellite tagging them. And so people started funding um, satellite tags and naming them after their kid, their grandma, a loved one, whatever. And I would help personalize these animals to tell you know what Jimmy the shark had done and what he was doing every day and, yeah. and as they yeah. migrated to the live platform kind of what they were doing and and through time showed people and the government that these sharks were not New Zealand sharks, but they in fact went to the equator and back every year. Yeah. And that they're migrating through places like Polynesia, which culturally have a massive respect for sharks, and in fact we're protecting them, stopping finning. And New Zealand is kind of a big brother to, to Polynesia, uh, because we have the funding ability to help them in small, you know, developing nations. And yet we were Thing, the bad boys you know, we were killing their cultural animals of importance and that was a huge political you know thumbs up for us and um, then also you know in the background I was doing the, the research and showing the ecological importance of sharks and um, their migration routes, of critical habitat use the amount of numbers we were killing and showed actually that New Zealand was a birthing and breeding ground for not only the blue shark in New Zealand but the South Pacific population Yeah. so all these pieces came together basically to bring up a great argument to stop the government spinning sharks. Mm-hmm. And the world had done similar things around around the globe in similar ways. And um basically the government was like, yeah, cool, we'll do it, but you know, phase it in over three years and yeah. you have to show a fisherman how to cut a shark free. And that was you can feel the emotion here and I, I it brings it up every time I talk about this in public. I was I was exhausted. Conservation works hard work. Yeah. And I said, Fuck, I need some time off, you know and and I looked overseas and Western Australia shark coal popped up. And, oh, God. And, and so I was like, shit, here's, here's my time off. You Vacation know? time. Totally, dude. And um, basically, long story short, there was a Western Australian marine biologist largely employed by their big fisheries, their government. And they were responsible for doing shark population things in a way that was a, you know, good to maintain stocks and ensure ocean sustainability and the, the Western Australian government and the Australian government in general was very good at funding tagging studies of great whites in particular they had smart boys they were they were doing some of the best tagging work in the world and um, then the Western Australian politicians decided after a few guys got bitten by sharks in the most highly populated white shark areas and the most remote surf areas um, that they were just gonna go kill sharks to solve what was just basically a personal risk problem. And, um, and it outraged the world, because we're a lot smarter than we were back in the Jaws days. It's a classic political um, and, move,
0: right? And, uh, oh, not just, just in the shark world. It was a reaction,
1: but... which when governments make that, they can't back out on oh, them, because no. they look like they made a mistake. And God forbid they do that. And God forbid they listen to the people after they've made a mistake. Um, so basically these these marine biologists, who I won't name, but very well-respected biologists who were working top knowledge tagging work, all of a sudden were working for the industry that was now using the exact same boat they were tagging the sharks to go out and kill them, to hook them on drum lines and shoot them if they were over three meters long, because a politician who sat in a box all his life with a tie on decided that that was an imminent threat, meaning that it was going to kill people. And this was... Outrageous to the Australian marine biologists. They do they this because of money.
0: Uh, the people that they were switched. funded
1: by the government. They were funded by this department, who shifted, made this political okay, shift.
0: Right, got it. So
1: they couldn't mm-hmm. stand up and say the reality, or even when they stood up to the government and said this is wrong, they didn't listen to them. And you know, we've moved away from politicians who went to scientists to get answers, mm-hmm. and that was what determined policies these days money people dictate that and screw the scientists because they're just greenies apparently and it's ridiculous and so basically the scientists of australia a couple of them emailed me and said hey riley we've seen what you've been doing in the news in in new zealand with shark finning can you come over and bring some light to this in western australia because i'm not funded by them and um and that was the beauty of my project back in new zealand i was funded by people so i could say whatever the fuck I wanted to be honest but, no that was real because I'm a scientist and I got to maintain credibility and objectivity but I, I wasn't bounded by money and um, so what was great is long story short I went over there with a the film crew uh, my, my friend Mike Barner, is a great natural history filmmaker and we were filming Shark Man a TV series that kind of went around New Zealand and then uh, yeah. the greatest Pacific um, and I teamed up with my friend Ocean Ramsey who's a well-known mm-hmm. shark conservationist who I'd spent a couple of seasons over in Hawaii with. She does a fantastic uh, shark free diving operation to educate people and maintain conservation around the world. And uh, we went over there as a team to basically use a recipe I learned that was working uh, which was using stimulating visual imagery to communicate science. And so I wanted to use this recipe in Australia and so what we determined was the recipe is we couldn't break the law. As a scientist I needed to, to maintain Objectivity and I need to work within the law. And, uh, you know, I really admired the Sea Shepherd guys over there. Um, they were out in the boat, they were doing their activist role, which was creating noise around something to generate public awareness. What I then wanted to couple with that was implementing science and the alternatives. So we created a plan to basically get in front of the news with something that was stimulating and captured an audience. You just stand up there and say, This is wrong. No one listens yeah people need to be entertained at the end of the day and so what we decided to do was these animals before i talked about if they're over three meters long they were shot a large majority of the animals were actually under three meters and these were these were little tiger sharks pretty much every single shark that was caught was a tiger shark which hadn't hurt or even interacted with a person since 1929 and um they were they were releasing these these tiger sharks these juveniles and they were basically left for dead. They had been on a hook for 12 hours. Um, they, they would have a hook that was three feet long through their head, and they were basically exhausted or, or mortally wounded. So how and, does that um, work?
0: Sorry, do they, they drag a big line behind the boat and just troll nah, it for So these... what they
1: do, so there's, so there's so much information to kind of cover. Yeah, you can just give me a really quick. But basically, the government, to kill the sharks, they set drum lines, which is basically an anchor with a float with a big motherfucker hook and a big piece of bait on it. And they did this all along the most popular beaches in Western Australia, which for number one is crazy because all of a sudden you're luring animals in with bait <laughs> and they're expecting food. And what if they don't go by the food and they encounter a person first? Um, secondly, Australia implemented shark, uh, not Australia, Hawaii implemented a 30 year shark cull from 1964 to the mid 80s, I think. And they proved through science it did nothing to reduce the risk of shark attack. So shark cull was scientifically proven not to reduce the risk of shark attack. Yet here we are in Western Australia and they're implementing a shark cull approach. So they basically set hooks, they catch these sharks, yeah. and these hooks are strung along, you know, 100 kilometers a beach. And this fisheries boat that used to tag the sharks was now going along with the same poor guys who worked on the tagging boat, and they were – Monitoring these things, but only two trips a day, yeah, so one in the morning and one at night, and so that means if a shark was caught in the morning at one end that they just checked, he wouldn't be seen or she wouldn't be seen until the next shift yeah. so we 'd go along this, this this drum line with this awesome couple, Andy Corbet and Laura Corbet, who, who were a couple with two young kids who were planning to do an overseas journey, you know ocean lovers, and they, they found this was going on in their backyard and they invited us over and. They worked tirelessly to expose us, and in fact, were the ones to show that these small sharks are released and left for dead. So they would take us alongside the sea-, sea shepherd boat, and we'd monitor the drum line. And if we found a shark on the drum line, we'd call the fisheries boat and be like, look, guys, there's one on here. It's, it's, it's needlessly struggling. On this line, it was the most horrific thing to watch. And, and if it was under three meters, it, it should have been released then and there and it, to survive. These guys would be at the other end or they'd be on coffee break, no shit, sitting on the boat and we're waiting there and you see this boat in the distance just puttering along, doing its thing, yeah. checking line by line by line. And then they eventually get there and this poor little shark will be dragged up on this hook and you can Google this imagery. It's, it's, it's crazy. And you, in fact, you can watch my Shark Man episode on Amazon for like a dollar now. Mm-hmm. Um, on the Western Australia coast, see this imagery. It was the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. It made me sick. And I literally had to physically restrain ocean from getting in the water um, to help these animals because it would have been breaking the law. Right. And um, we knew it, that maintaining credibility and legal approaches. They'll,
0: they'll use that as ammo. No problem. Exactly. And yeah. they wanted
1: yeah. us to do it. Yeah. So basically, we, we, were, we saw that these little ones were left. And we saw the loophole and that we could get one of these sharks off the bottom. And I had resuscitated this great white in South Africa. that jumped on the boat before by swimming. It. And we knew that unlike in South Africa, we couldn't tie it to the boat because that was against the law. It was, uh, it was, uh, hot, like having the shark. I can't remember what the wording was, but Barbary. it was something. Somebody... Yeah. And we had a, we had a le- we had a lawyer on board to make sure we, stuck <laughs> it and, uh, so anyway, these guys dumped this little tiger shark back and you see it. it's horrific imagery. It just sinks belly up down to the bottom. Yeah. So we jump in and these guys, the fisheries guys are pissing off and they see us jump in and they're like, they're like, we got them, we've got these guys, we've got to bust them up. And we go down, we pick this little shark up off the bottom. It's just lump. We start swimming it in there on the megaphone, like you are breaking the law righty, 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 right around. My lawyer's on the other oh. megaphone. He's like, there's a marine <laughs> biologist. He's right within the law. He's doing this. He's only doing this because of these negligence. You know, blah, 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 blah. This is all for the good of the shark. And, and it basically was showing the negligence. And, and more importantly, it was, it went around the media really quickly that two people were in the water Swimming with these imminent threats yeah. to save. Them. Yeah. Why the hell would these people be doing this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, at the time there was a the surf life national uh, international competition going on. So there's like thousands of people on the beach. Yeah. And uh, and the IRBs came out and they saw what we were doing. I went back and like, whoa, there's like two people like swimming a shark. Like, I was like, what the fuck? like. And then there's media there. And then all of a sudden, after about an hour, there's like eight news helicopters around, 20 boats around, and they're filming us like with like this team of people in the water now because it's hard work swimming a shark. And, and, and basically, I'm on one side of it. Ocean Ramsey's on the other. Yeah. We have to open its mouth to breathe for it. And it's not swimming at all. It's just like limp. But like we're eye to eye with this animal. You can see its pupil moving, so we knew it was alive. And, and we were so tired after that long. We, we started subbing people in. And so Ocean and I as, as a professional each would, would take a turn right. each resting but staying there to help show people what to do. Yeah. And the whole Sea Shepherd team was there. There was Laura and Andy and We got these people in, you know, empowering people to help this. And the news people couldn't believe it. Why are everyday people helping this animal? How
0: did they spin and, it initially? Were they saying that you are crazy or were they into it?
1: Well, no, they were. Some of the channels are very biased in Australia. and <laughs> Western Australia, predominantly. And they're like, greenies are out here, right, ride, right. Ride, ride. Yeah. You know, do eco-warrior shit. But then when we started, to, oh, my God, it's a scientist. It's a marine biologist. And... And and then these are everyday people like whoa these are activists like or they're not out there for anarchy and the beautiful imagery came out and you watch these episodes and this imagery of this helpless animal not kicking for itself and and and, and it was just so unjust and no, no one can look at a dying innocent animal and not feel bad no matter how against sharks you are and, so anyway we swam for an hour and a half in it felt like it was lifeless and, and I was like shit man this thing's going to be dead but that's going to be powerful enough anyway because it shows negligence of them releasing these alive they're yeah. saying oh, all these sharks are released alive and these things fell to the bottom and died yeah. um, so we gave it like this one like, last push off and it was about 10 meters deep this water and it just sunk you know like started turning belly up and I was like fuck you I was like man that sucks like this thing was awesome the cutest coolest little raddest little dude and then like its peak fin hit the bottom just before its belly did and it kind of gave a little kick and we're like, oh, what, what? And then it gave another kick and then we're like, holy shit, it's a lot. And then like it started kicking and started swimming and we're like, oh my God. And like I've seen sharks do that and then peter out, but then this thing just like got faster and faster and we're all like, there's like 20 people in <laughs> the body now just swimming on the surface. Like yeah. barely keeping up with it. I used to swim for New Zealand pretty much and me and Juan, the other ocean's um, panda, he's like an epic so swimmer. We're like sprinting swimming now. We couldn't keep up with it yeah. and swam off. It's like. Oh my god, we we helped save it. And it just added that that awesome Cinderella like moment to the end of the story that gave a happy ending yeah. to what made the media story so much sweeter. And so, you know, we got back to shore and there were news teams lined up. And what was great is we weren't there to get news fame or ego or whatever. The important part was it put me as a scientist on the world stage to say why I did that, why we did that. Yeah. And it was basically that, number one, this shows the negligence. Number two, Tiger Shark hasn't touched someone since 1929. Why have they killed 160 out of 175 Tiger Sharks caught? and Great Whites were implemented in it, in the attacks? Um, it's because they were setting drum lines in this out of the whale season, and the whale season is when sharks come, the Great Whites come. So it was this whole bullshit, they didn't know what they were doing kind of thing. Then it gave me the opportunity to say shark culls scientifically don't work. You want to be safer on your beaches? Here's a whole bunch of alternatives that are either proven, like shark spotters in South Africa, mm-hmm. or are uh, things that are better than what you're currently using, like shark spotter planes or helicopters they have a 17% chance of seeing a shark. Yeah. Whereas drones or shark spotters have a high, high, far greater opportunity and cost much less. Mm-hmm. And then there's the smart boys, there's the eco barriers, there's, this, there's the. Um, the shark shields, you know, there's a whole plethora in and things, and it just gave this massive platform to represent scientifically, objectively and factually that the shark cull should stop. And what was fantastic was within a week, the documentary we put together that then the marine biologists of Australia themselves took to Canberra in Parliament, right. along with all the protests and the public opinion against it, made the, the policy in Western Australia stop.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because you talk about the the marine biologists that worked on that initial boat that they were helping, and then they're, since they're funded by the government, had to do what they wanted and actually kill these sharks. It's it's hard to actually blame them in a way, right? Oh, I, you I think, couldn't. No, you
1: couldn't. And that was the that was the biggest thing was. I went up between some of these monitoring trips and yeah. I went right up to the, this big intimidating boat. It's like a Navy boat. Yeah. Um, that was where they would kill the sharks. And, and I went up to the guy and there's this massive like bikey looking dude who was intimidating as hell came up like ready to smack me because I was an activist or, or like I was just going to give him shit yeah. or throw some like off butter at him or something. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. And um, and I was like, oh dude. And they're like GoPro and everything. I was like, Hey man, I'm a scientist. I'm not here to give you shit. I'm, I understand your job is incredibly difficult and you're being made to do this and you were tagging sharks like two weeks ago. Yeah. You know, like your job is horrific and I feel for you. Yeah. My, I'm here to help you do what is a crap, forced decision right now and the best way to help these sharks. Legally, yeah. Legally. What I'm also here to do is is show the politicians that are making you do this that mm-hmm. there's better alternatives and get you off this boat as quick as yeah, possible. And they responded well? Tagging. And he was like, holy shit, he went from one col- color to another and was just like, oh, my God, man, that- I don't want to be doing this, man. Like, I like animals, you know, and it was just – it was so sad because yeah. these guys were just demonized, and you know? It's,
0: yeah, it's crazy how the actual issue – it doesn't have to be the sharks, anything going on in the news. The issue gets lost in the us versus them mentality. It then just oh, – that's the gets competition. gets lost
1: in politicians, man. What sucks, and I hate about politics, is <laughs> – in order to get into those seats, you have to rub with the right collars, money predominantly. So let's that kind of person. Whereas if you and me or any educated person of our generation, to be honest, um, who knows right and wrong, you, you'd be voted in straight away by the people because things are black and white right or wrong in most political decisions. Yet there's so many confounding factors that uh, you know, make people like Donald Trump allow coal to be kicked back in and climate change things to be refused so it's it's really frustrating but at the end of the day what I learned with shark finning which by the way when I went back to New Zealand got banned in 2014 yeah. um, and in the shark cull these were two conservation victories i had been a part of and helped contribute to and many others contributed to them don't get me wrong um, was that one recipe worked most Conservationists work their whole lifetime and don't get victory. Look at Maui's dolphin in New Zealand; they're still on the cusp of endangerment, and we haven't done anything. Um, Is the recipe worked? Was which was you stimulating visual imagery to communicate science, and it's the exact same imagery that I go back to David Attenborough uses. Right. BBC spends millions of dollars to make the most epic, cool-looking pictures. Why? because we get entertained by it and we watch it. Yeah. And then he very cleverly and unbiasedly or unopinionatedly, objectively laces science into it. And if you're not an idiot, you get it and you understand why these animals need whatever they need to help them. Yeah, And that is the magic point of how to achieve conservation of success. And the, the, the next point to get it over the line in the politician's booth is to make it financially more plausible to do the thing you want than yeah. the thing that you're doing. And for sharks, uh, Gabriel Vienna, he's an epic scientist out of Australia, did an, a, a study that we needed so badly for this campaign to get across the line. I personally feel it was the reason why it got across the line is he showed that a live shark was worth more than a dead shark. He showed the value in Palau yeah. Fiji. tourism versus finning a shark.
0: And honestly, I have to applaud you guys for being that that activists well i know you're scientists as well scientists slash activists that have the solution as well instead of just going out there with your pitchforks and your signs and saying this is wrong and then if they're like okay well what do you want that people have no idea what the change is but you're going out there and you're you're showing them a solution that makes sense on many different fronts whether it's financial or safety wise so i definitely i respect what you guys are doing
1: a lot uh, cheers but i think that is it's a total key thing and <clears throat> there's no use pointing fingers and saying, "Don't do it." Like, now, sometimes, right. like, right. <coughs> excuse me. Sometimes, like uh, with Sea Shepherd, they're activists, they're huge activists. They'll be called green eco terrorists by governments. But sometimes there's just right and wrongs, and I totally agree with what they do in Antarctica with whaling because it's just wrong. You don't have to make a monetary equivalent better, but I mean, there is the, the eco from whales and Tonga, the same whales they kill down there is far more worth it the whaling that Japan does. So it's definitely implementable. And, and that shows this trouble of having, you know, collaborative international governments work together. But yeah, in these cases, it's a lot easier in politics to get across the line if you make the money talk, yeah. as well as the right or wrong decision. And, um, you know, I need to really emphasize, again, the reason why these successes happened. And it's, it's a recipe I'm continue to follow. Um, with my girlfriend, Amber Jones, uh, She's a photographer. I'm lucky enough to have an underwater photographer as a partner. Um, And and friends like Matt Draper, who's a a fantastic uh, underwater photographer of animals, Mm -hmm. because you have to create the entertainment. You have to create the stimulating visual imagery that draws the crowd. And that's why she and, and, and Matt Draper are fantastic, because they make these unique images of animals that people go, holy crap, like, what is that? And then... You've got to have the story to go with it. There's no point just making pretty pictures. Yeah. Because that's just pointless, in my opinion. And that is why I love people like Amber and Matt Draper and various people I work with around the world who make the pictures but have the stories to go with them, mm-hmm. which is why I hate, and with a passion, the direction social media has gone with, and I'm just really pigeonholing this, but right. hot chicks and a G-string on a beach with 5 million followers earning $20,000 a post. Because to be honest, look, guys, we're all the same. We love tits and ass. And look, I follow some of them because shit, man, it's a bit better than watching dead dolphins or something every second post. But it pisses me off that there's not more Leonardo DiCaprio's out there who have the world stage, they have the money, and they, they use their power and their voice to put it in the right direction. And people like him, every millionaire, billionaire, Every rich politician, every rich philanthropist, whatever, should be doing that. Because at the end of the day, it is as simple as sharks are the garbage men and the doctors of the sea. Mm-hmm. They maintain the stability of those ecosystems. And it's a debated point, but it's a good one. Every second breath of air we breathe comes from the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. So, fuck, man. As blunt <laughs> as that, and I love swearing because it makes people realize real person. Snap out of it. Yeah. Person, snap yeah. out of it, man. It's yeah. like. It's not rocket science and yeah. go fucking swim with one because then you'll love it and you'll see how awesome they are if you want an excuse to help protect them. Yeah.
0: The the funny thing with Leo and that documentary, I, I respect what he did and it's obviously an important message, but the contrast between what he said and how he acts in his life definitely catches me a little bit in a weird way.
1: Ah, oh, I mean, totally. Like not everyone's perfect. I mean, geez, imagine being that guy. How difficult it would be. Yeah, being. yeah. What? I mean, like, like, like anyone, you can judge anyone. I'm, I work in the shark circle of people, and it's a hugely egotistical area. Yeah. Um, because number one, it's small. Number two, it's competitive. Mm-hmm. And number three, there's no money unless you get on the stage. Um, so it's very difficult. But So there's a lot of bitching, you know. Yeah. And uh, I very much, uh, whether it's the Kiwi in me or the way my mum brought me up, I really try and be nice to everybody. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, there's no point. If someone does something one way, cool. I'm not going to give them shit about it, but I'm going to do it my way, and hopefully that will sustainably be seen as the right way because it's faultless, and I'm not pissing anyone off, mm-hmm. and uh, it'll, it'll sustain more than something else, but I, I mean, just brought Leo up because he's just the biggest name of <laughs> yeah. these kind of things, and he stood up in front of Congress in the international stage and you know, put his, his money where his mouth was. Yeah. Um, you know, There's heaps of others, the Richard Branson's, you know, a whole bunch of these guys, but mm-hmm. I really encourage that like Matt Draper went overseas recently with his, his photography and he went to LA, you know, the biggest circus in the world. And he, and he's not the kind of guy that likes that kind of show. He's I know a, a, I can tell. He's a, he's, yeah. He's a builder who like, <laughs> and this photographer who had a skill and a passion has followed it down a path that has taken him to places that he's not used to rubbing shoulders with the richest families in the world. And, but he did it because he saw that it was a chance to get his, his imagery and his message out there. Yeah. And uh, more importantly, he didn't just go, oh, I just want to create my ego. He, he called me up when he got home. He said, Riley, I want, I want you to talk to these guys who I met. And I want us to team up together to take this to the world. And, and you know, screw the, the shows on the big channels these days who just dramatize crap. No one watches that stuff anyway. We're all about internet and Red Bull Media. And let's just make mm-hmm. a platform. And let's use imagery to create the science, like you always say. And we share this, fear of fascination thing. And, like, let's work with these biggest guys to help back us through the highest corporate chains, not because of the money, but the money does let you explore and show these areas that you need to get to where there's no money to help us do it in the first place. But More importantly, it educates the top guys with the money who do have that trickle down effect, not only through their financial decisions on governments, like look at Richard Branson when he says, Virgin ain't gonna fly shark fins anymore. He controls a hell of a lot of money in airways and a hell of a lot of corporate pull. You educate more of those top guys um, and you're going to have a far bigger effect in convincing the people you're preaching to the choir with who already know that your answer is, you know, in line with theirs.
0: Yeah, it's a really good attitude to have, like you said, things won't be perfect, the solution won't be perfect, but even just these little changes that people can make, it'll all add up, especially if it's coming from the higher-ups.
1: Yeah. Um, so, man, it's, I mean, jeez, we've gone back and forth and ins and, and outs, but it's, yeah. it's this, and you can feel my passion, I guess, as oh. well, but, Hell yeah, I can, man. Well, I mean, that's... I talk to schools a lot. It's getting me excited
0: about it. Yeah. I'm like, we need to pack up the cameras and let's go.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Well, you you got to have persistence to achieve anything that's difficult. And unfortunately, saving animals in the world, which take up habitat that we want to make money from, is a a difficult thing and it requires persistence. And you have to have passion for that. And I, I go to these school kids and I... And I see these you know, eight-year-olds and I'm like, what do you guys want to be? And they're like, oh, I want to study sharks, or I want to study animals, right. or I want to be a marine biologist. And we all, I'm sure, at some stage as a kid, I wanted to work with animals. Cause, why? Because it's just fucking cool, man. We're from nature, you know. And unfortunately, society kind of demands that we need some you yeah, know, real jobs. That gets smashed stuff. out of you pretty quickly. As, smashed yeah. out of you pretty quick. Why? Because you need to get a real job and get money. And, and it sucks. And I tell these kids what my dad told me. And I just say, man, find your passion. Yeah. whatever it is, find your passion, it doesn't matter if it's music, it's art, it's animals, it's whatever find your passion, generally what your passion is will be something that's difficult to make a job out of Yeah. because it's, it's, it's encouraging, it's fun, it's going to make you feel good, it's going to let you fill a fulfilled life, not many people let themselves have that because monetary jobs pay you good money, why? because it's shit, or you're making money for someone else and you're doing the wrong thing or you're working horrible hours Find your passion because that way you'll be able to persist through what is going to be the hard journey to get yeah. you in life. Yeah. And if you can become the best at it, and the best not being like I beat everyone else, the best being you're showing people a good example or you're doing the right thing, people come around to backing that and helping that because they didn't unfortunately, and they regrettably didn't take that part since they were a kid. And they sign into the gravy train. And I think the message I'm really trying to get out to these kids and the world in general is that it's possible to move to the beach like I have in the last year from the biggest corporate city in New Zealand called Auckland, move away from the stability of a paycheck and meetings and corporations, move to the place I got used to go on holiday as a kid and live what I feel like is perceived to be a guilty and, and I've gone against the grain lifestyle Yeah. because I get to live a fulfilling life and communicate to the world that this is how I'm living. Everybody can do it, and if everybody did it, we'd be far more emotionally engaged in nature.
0: Now let's imagine. To, uh, let's imagine that you had enough money to move to this same area and build a house, but you didn't have the marine biology in your life. How empty would you feel?
1: Yeah, right. Well, t- well, yeah, I'd just be looking at these There's things, no point. And, you know, and not really knowing how to engage with it. There's no that's, point. Yeah, I, and that's a big passion. Of mine. it brings me to that point is, he, we all as kids are emotionally engaged with nature. Because ultimately, inherently, and, and, and through evolution, we come from it. And like you say, they get beaten out of us because, look, to be honest, we do need the people who do societal jobs. to yeah, Society, yeah, running sure. Um, But we've lost that emotional engagement through nature. And how do you get that back? David you know, Stimulating visual imagery that communicates science, that engages you, that evokes emotion. Better yet, get out there and feel it, do yeah. ecotourism, dive, explore, put your head under water yeah. for god 's sake, you know like there's nothing to anyone it doesn 't matter who you are, what background you can come from that fulfills you more than doing something that stimulates some adrenaline. And I can tell you, yeah, you might get it from the Wolf on Wall Street with a good bank sale that went through, and yeah. but you get it way better and way more naturally by jumping off a cliff, climbing a mountain, or feeling that raw. Oh, man. Wildness. Yeah,
0: I live in Whistler, BC, like surrounded by the mountains. And every time I get up there into the backcountry, you've got avalanche danger. And it's, yeah, it's really sketchy. But you get home after a day of that and you're like, oh, fuck, like I'm still here. And you just appreciate everything way more. You've got a warm house oh, and everything. It's
1: Totally do. Especially yeah. when you've had those close calls. I mean, like I said, I can really, I've done three seasons of Whistler. I love the place. I worked at the Horseman Hall at the top there. Oh, yeah. Why did I love that job so much? Because it was on the top of the mountain, man. And I worked on a barbecue out on the deck and I could see 360 (laughs) the wilderness. Yeah. Rather than, uh, you know, sitting in an office somewhere and yeah, I got paid nine bucks an hour, but the lifestyle paid me a priceless.
0: 100%. And I, I never want people to think, and I think you're on the same level with me, where I know it's not that simple. Like people have bills to pay. Maybe you have a kid, you had a kid too early and you've got to figure it out. It's not that people don't have to have like people do need to have jobs and need to have paychecks, but just I really think uh, for example, like I wanted to be a professional skateboarder when I was young. And then yeah. I realized that probably wasn't gonna happen, so I kinda chopped it up and like, why do I wanna be a professional skateboarder? Because I wanna travel, I wanna meet people and I wanna be outside. And I found that I could achieve that through film and photography. So Yeah, I think pivot. Make, Yeah pivot. Pivot. Yeah. It's not yeah, gonna you be You don't perfect. change
1: your ideals or your wants or your passion. Yeah, pivot. Yeah, and li- likewise, I mean, geez, I didn't realize I'm gonna, end up studying sharks. I'm, its like the apex of, or I could
0: hope for maybe, but will be a pro surfer? I don't,
1: I don't, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know where my paycheck comes from tomorrow at all.
0: How exciting you know, is but,
1: that, though? Uh, oh, it's it's rad, and it, keeps yeah. it and I wouldn't want it any other way because if I did, I'd have a a predictable life, and that's not who I am. I like to travel, like you're saying, but more importantly, you got to give people the solutions if you want to live a stimulating lifestyle engage with nature it's called a veggie garden man it's called learning how to to go hunting and capturing your own meat if you eat meat it's learning how to go back to where we came from man and live off the land yeah and i i loved when i was a kid the book the hatchet it it was a book that of a kid who got given a hatchet and a plane crash in the bc wilderness and man it just evokes that childlike let's go explore and survive and make huts and traps you know kids don't make huts anymore they sit on their fucking an iPod and play games or whatever, you know? <laughs> and the problem with that is they don't see the world around them and, and you know, it's creating diseases, of, you know, heart disease or whatever, diabetes, sitting there and eating too much crap. You know, we're, we're having a mass-produced food because people don't know how to grow it themselves. And there is no excuse other than laziness to not grow your own food, catch your own food, and trade your own food with others so you don't have to grow everything. Yeah. Because I was just recently in the Middle East, in Bahrain, of all places. This place is literally a Walmart in the middle of the desert. And the guys go spearfishing there. They catch their own fish. Mm-hmm. They, they've done it for millions of years. They they, they they grow dates and they put them under their floorboards to create juice and, and protein out of dates. I mean, people have done this for millions of like, years. What's their thousands. happiness level over there? Yeah, and, and yeah, they're loving yeah. it. The guys who were not up in the skyscrapers were loving it and they're yeah. amazing. They could share that lifestyle with me. And I was like, wow. Especially because they weren't all terrorists like the Western society looked like, you know. It was, they were like, they taught me about their religion so much because they were, they were so scathed by the Westernized society of terrorism that they were just like, man, do you even know what Islam religion is? And I was like, no, to be honest, not really. And I was like, wow, that, the ideas of that align a lot more with what I've been taught in Western society. Shit. You know, you don't, you, I, I'm digressing. But no, no, no. It's it important. Is,
0: like what, yeah. what we've been talking about this whole time, I just keep thinking in my head, it, it really applies to everything. These political battles and our knowledge of the things that we fear, which could be people and religions or sharks, and the limited knowledge that we have on it. So,
1: Yeah, know. it's it's perspective. And I think we aligned really quickly there on travel. I say to kids, the best thing you can do in your life is travel. Mm-hmm. Because then you get perspective, and perspective gives an educated decision on whether it's finding your passion. Right. Whether it's making an opinion of someone because they're wearing a broker.
0: Yeah, just know why you're making your decisions instead of Uh, being pushed. Relying
1: on someone telling you information. Who's to know if that's real or not? Yeah. Just like jobs.
0: Yeah. Uh, Anyways, I want to be respectful of your time. One more kind of question or thought. You mentioned uh, activism, conservation being super draining. And I can tell by your crazy passion that it probably bleeds into your personal life. Do you ever, do you experience burnout pretty often
1: from it? Yeah, yeah, totally, man. When I was, the biggest example of it was when I signed up for my PhD and my supervisor. I had straight A's, but at the time we were more interested in getting wealthy student immigration into the country than support our own people doing stuff for our own country. And he said to me, can you do this without a scholarship? And I said, yeah, didn't even think about how. And the story of finance and funding the project, let alone to how to fund myself, feed myself. Because funding for projects don't feed you or pay your rent. That's like a, yeah. a quasi-conflict of interest. You know? <laughs> um, that, was, that became the most difficult thing. And I've done the hard yards. I've lived like a student for 10 years. That doesn't mean like I'm a povo person. It just meant I had to rely on the skills and the trades I had, which number one was feeding myself from the ocean and the land. And number two was being a people's person trading experiences for financial assistance and i had some great philanthropists who helped me but the ability not to support yourself is a hugely stressful thing and you brought it up about paying the bills and kids and whatever i don't have kids but i got bills and i got realities and and at 25 to be having to like go back to my parents like man i need 300 a week to cover rent and that was shit you know Mm -hmm. it sucked and I was trying to grow and I'm 30 now, and that's why people don't finish PhDs because money becomes a real issue. Um, and I'm just at the end of finishing my PhD, and it's cross my fingers the next couple of months I do. But um, man, I'm a very honest person. Like I had, you know, mild anxiety, depression, you know, like a lot of people who go into these difficult worlds have it. Like yeah. there's a reason why artists, I'm not calling myself an artist, but artists do heaps of drugs and and, and drink and become alcoholics is they're giving all their emotional energy to other people. And after I do a speech or a, a school talk or a, a TED talk or whatever, you're drained mm-hmm. Because I saw a behavioral biologist of people one day in, a, in, a, in the green room of an interview place. And she, she hadn't even talked to me. She didn't even know who I was. And she just said to me, hey, mate, you look like you're spreading your squid tentacles <sighs> way too far. Yeah. And you, giving everyone your energy, not saving any for yourself. And I was like, I don't even know who you are, but Jesus Christ, it's exactly what it felt like. And, and I'm the biggest person we see it in New Zealand. are rugby players who advocate, you know, depression or yeah. uh, anxiety or just burnout. And, um, you know, I'm a student, man. I, I partied a lot. I, I went down that road for a while. I went, I had to leave Whistler the third season because I didn't yeah, want to yeah. just keep using that lifestyle as an yeah. escape from reality. Um, and so the point being is, yeah, it's, it's tough, man, but life's not easy, No, yeah. especially when you're doing the right thing. And if, you, if you're a good person, generally things work out for you because people will help you, especially if you're doing the right thing. Yeah. And I don't like relying on hope or promoting hope, but I'm seeing change in the world, and it's predominantly that younger generation is expecting in politics and policies that their world is, should be being taken care of because why shouldn't it? Mm. And to bring it right back to the start it's because they watch Finding Nemo and not Jaws. Yeah. And that gives them a different perspective and therefore a different opinion and uh, mm. expectation of the world. And that, I hope, and I use that word lightly because I don't like to rely on it, as okay. I said. I expect that will help the world change and will help people live the right lives, which should be shoulder to shoulder with nature because at the end of the fucking day unless we find life on another planet real quick which is a horrible way to just ruin something (laughs) move on but i do like ocean space exhalation is we need to preserve our planet and if we don't we will ultimately die like a bacteria so at the end of the day if you just watch jaws go watch finding me
0: i love it yeah i want to wrap on that but i'd be kicking myself if i didn't ask is there anything that you've done in particular to kind of like overcome the anxiety and depression periods that you had?
1: Yeah, I guess it was, it it was just to continue doing what made me feel good. You know, when you you go for it, like you say, you run a mean powder run or, you know, like you catch a sick epic wave or for a gym buff, you pump a bigger weight session than you've done. Mm -hmm. You do something that stimulates your endorphins because ultimately depression or anxiety or anything like that is a lack of serotonin put bluntly the only way to stimulate those things is to go back to our primitive source of running away from a fucking lion that's trying to kill get out of
0: your mind into your body
1: exactly live in the now i read *Power of now that is the kind of book that helps you through those things live in the now stimulate that natural engagement with nature and you will live a far more fulfilled life that is better for this world no doubt
0: yeah awesome cool man thanks so much for your time it was great catching up, and I fully respect what you guys are doing. Like the passion coming from you for like an hour straight. I hope I haven't spread you th- too thin today, and you feel like you still got. Uh,
1: cheers, Ryan. Energy. Thanks so much, man. If it, I really appreciate you having me on here. I encourage people to sign up, subscribe to this because I've listened to myself, like this, but I guess about like Matt Draper's one earlier, which was awesome. You, you you pull off a great podcast, and now if anyone else wants any more information from me, contact me through my website, RileyElliot or uh, Raleigh Shocks on Instagram.
0: And then your show's on Amazon too,
1: yeah? Yeah, Amazon Shockman TV. Beauty.
0: Thank you for listening, everybody. If you enjoyed it, you can head over to iTunes. Feel free to subscribe. Or you can check out the website. And we also post these podcasts on YouTube. If you enjoyed it, you can leave a review on iTunes. And you can also subscribe to the monthly email.